Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Luke Vernon, managing partner of Ridgeline Ventures. Ridgeline Ventures is an independent investment group that provides founders and brands a unique alternative to traditional investment firms. Some of their investments include Cotopaxi, Bobos, Oros, and Pros Closet. Previously, he was the COO of Eco Products, which he scaled from 1 million to 80 million. We discuss his learnings as an operator, why he invests in consumer brands currently, where other investor interest has softened, the benefits of being a family office and how he thinks about investment timelines. Without further ado, here's Luke. Luke, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? Doing fantastic. Great to be here. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much again for spending time with me and for doing this. I really appreciate it. So you were an entrepreneur. You helped grow eco products. You scaled it from 1 million to 80 million. What were some of your learnings from that whole experience? Well, it was such an unbelievable ride. I mean, we went one year, one of the, in the basically first four or five years, we went from 1 million to 36 million and, and beyond after that. And I think there were, you know, a few really important things. Number one is I had never done anything like that before. And uh, that was my first time in a, in a role like that, leading a business. And I think one lesson was just because someone hasn't done it doesn't mean that they can't do it. And I try to carry that with me as an investor today. For me, I had to surround myself with a lot of CEOs and really understand like what made them really good leaders. And so I think for me, it really, really helped uncover the value of personal growth and investing in yourself. Uh, I think another one being is to not focus so much on the outcome or the exit. And we built that business for many, many years around focusing on selling it to a strategic acquirer. And when you do that, I've found anyway that oftentimes the goalposts change over time. And you don't really know what a buyer is going to want in your business when you get to that point that you think it's, you know, they're going to be interested in buying it. And the reality is, is that we made some decisions to build a business that we thought someone would want to buy. And we went out to sell the business and weren't successful in it. And so we took a few years to kind of retool it and kind of restructure it to actually be the, you know, the most successful business that it, that it could be. And I think the third just being that, you know, just because investors say no doesn't mean that you can't still have a very successful business. We did raise venture capital and angel capital, but the reality is it was very little. And we had a lot of people saying no to us. We, we raised less money than we probably, um, you know, wanted to at different milestones. And I think, you know, just because, you know, you see the media and you see the news around, uh, you know, capital raises doesn't mean that that's always the most successful path, you know, for, for every business. That's really, really interesting. I'd love to dig in when you say that you built the business that where for a potentially a strategic acquirer, what's different? What did you do differently where you built the business for a potential, you know, acquisition from a strategic versus maybe what you would have done in, in hindsight? Yeah, I would say it, it, stemmed in part from focusing more on growth than on underlying fundamentals of the business, kind of almost the growth at all costs mentality of going out, getting distribution. And different buyers value 
different distribution and different you know channels um, differently. And so, um, so it's not just about going out and growing at all costs. It's about you know I think what we realized in our industry was that profitability, gross margins were very very important. Really managing trade spend, um, you know, efficiently, and and building something that was defensible and that had a moat. And I think initially we thought that we would grow so fast and that, you know, being the first company in the industry to really produce a line of commercially compostable and high recycled content packaging that, that people would naturally, you know, strategic acquirers would naturally gravitate towards wanting to own it. And the reality is they all kind of felt like they could do it themselves and, and do it just as well. And so we really had to prove ourselves that we had, you know, some defensibility and some uniqueness and that we were doing things very differently. That's really helpful. You eventually sell Ego Products, right, to a strategic. Now, after Ego Products is sold, what eventually got you thinking of becoming an investor? Well, truth be told, I mean, Mike, starting a business, as you know, it's hard. It's brutal. And I've started a, a few on my own. And, you know, it's not just the process of, you know, what you go through to raise money and to get a product on shelf or online. And, it's to me one of the bigger challenges was almost the ups and downs on not just a daily basis but an hourly basis both mentally emotionally everything you're carrying a lot of weight when you're running a business and starting a company for a lot of other people's livelihoods and i have so much respect for founders who do that and at the same time i just found in my career as i was progressing through it that i really wanted to have my hands in multiple businesses and try to make an impact as much as I could in multiple businesses, as opposed to be just kind of focused on on one. And I also felt like I had learned so much from some of the board members and investors that were involved in Eco Products and some of the other you know companies and so forth that I wanted to kind of share some of those lessons and help companies you know try to grow and scale through some of the things that I had learned. And and certainly I still have a lot more to learn today. But I just felt like there there was also a different way to do things. You know, Ridgeline, we don't have outside investors today in our business. And, and I felt like as we were raising capital, as we took on venture capital, that there were always some dynamics around whether it's fund structure or different requirements that investors, you know, may have in their firms and funds that can sometimes impact the best decision for the business. So really wanted to kind of take all that pressure off and take some of those kind of artificial you know, decision parameters off. And, and that's kind of, that kind of drove some of my decision. And ultimately, you know, that's, that's how we think about it at Ridgeline too. So it was thinking that personally, in terms of what you actually enjoyed, it was maybe thinking more broadly and being able to help maybe across category um, rather than having to focus on, you know, going back to starting a business and focusing on, you know, solving one problem, one thing. And also, as you say, like inspiration from the board members that you had and those roles and knowing, you know, since obviously you've had incredible experience growing companies, share those learnings with entrepreneurs, which makes, I mean, a ton of sense. So how did Ridgeline Ventures form? Yeah, my partner, Eric, started it and he had a very successful business uh, previously in his career that he grew and, and stepped away from. And he really wanted to kind of changed the paradigm in investing as well. He wanted to invest in private companies and he wanted to do it in a space that he was really passionate about, which is health and wellness, helping people live a healthier lifestyle. 
And so he set aside a substantial portion of his capital to do that and to start investing. And that's where we ended up meeting because he was looking for um, help and support to you know, really open the office here in Boulder and start investing and, and build our portfolio. And so we hit it off and, and really that, that was the idea is try to take away the traditional kind of boundaries on investing and on investment firms and have autonomy over our decisions and really doing it in a way that felt really, uh, really genuine to what we believed in and what our values are. And, you know, kind of underlying all that is working with people that we really like and that we really want to spend time with. Because this, you know, as you know, Mike, it's, it's harder to divorce an investor than it is a spouse. And, and so choosing the right investor is just so important. So that really was the genesis of Ridgeline. So when Eric started Ridgeline Ventures and, and had this thesis of, you know, something that's very passionate that he's about, which is health and wellness and, you know, wanting to focus as well on the innovation side of health and wellness since it's, you know, private companies. When did you get involved and how do you break down like health and wellness? Because it's such a large, you know, I mean, there's a lot of categories that kind of sit under it. How do you think about health and wellness as well? I got involved kind of pretty much right away early on when when he made that decision to invest in that space. And and I think how, how we've defined it is, products and companies that we feel good about putting on our website and that we feel good about either feeding to our kids, having our kids wear, and that really just have a positive impact on the world and on consumers. And that can be you know, pretty broad, like the world of desserts and indulgence, for example. There's lower sugar, there's better for you, there's dairy-free, there's clean ingredients. And I think for us, it, a lot of that is a personal decision. But underwriting, it is just alignment in values more than anything. So there's a couple categories that we call off limits and we just won't invest in. But for the most part, you know, if we believe that a company is having a positive impact in the world is somehow contributing to people, you know, being healthier, better for the planet, then that's all in games for us. Cool. That's great. That's great. So it's quite broad, but obviously it's health and wellness within consumer. Now, Ridgeline, it's you don't take any outside capital. Is that right? Yeah, we, we haven't today. doesn't mean we won't in the future, but we haven't so far. Yeah. Got it. Got it. And so what's the strategy there as well, you know, being a somewhat, you know, family office? I think it's two-pronged. You know, number one is the autonomy that comes with investing your own capital and the flexibility that has afforded us in terms of picking the companies, in terms of the stage we invest in, you know, the types of businesses. I think the other thing is that as we think about the future and continuing to build Ridgeline, and if we do raise outside capital at some point in the future, we have a, a pretty solid track record now under our belt in which we've invested our own capital in a pretty meaningful way to demonstrate that we know what we're doing. And so I think, I think those are two important kind of approaches for us as we think about building this for the long term. There's been a couple advantages for us. Just the timeline has been nice, um, you know, not getting caught right away as we kind of build our investor track record of having to deploy a fund within the first you know, three to five years and really kind of financially engineer businesses to try to harvest returns and so forth that we've been able to really focus on building the best foundation. I think at the same time, it's helped us build a really strong competency around how do you mitigate risk? Because for us, like going to zero is just not an option. We don't want to lose any of our own money as we wouldn't want to lose anyone else's money. So we just don't think about it from the standpoint of, 
you know, uh, if we have 10 portfolio companies, one's a home run, three, you know, redoubles, three return capital and three are losers. So we just, for us, we want every single one to be a winner and a winner could be across a broad spectrum of, you know, returns, but going to zero, frankly, we just, you know, something we just, you know, really aren't, aren't willing to do. Well, I think this is also kind of interesting as well. And um, I actually had a conversation with this with a few people last week. How do you think about you know fundraising for consumer or the current landscape, venture capital landscape for consumer? And I kind of feel like, and I love your perspective on this too, a lot of investors have shifted away from consumer, not to call them out, but like the software more oriented investors. And part of the reason I feel is because I think of what you described in terms of portfolio construction in that you don't really have power law dynamics as much in, in working with consumer brands. It's more so looks like, which, you know, that's kind of traditional venture capital, like kind of like you have a, those power law dynamics. You might have quite a few companies that go to zero, right? But in consumer, it more looks like maybe like a private equity portfolio done at you know earlier stage because you do have a lot more winners, even though those winners might not you know be like fifty x that it could get to in software, right, or hundred x. How do you think about like the current maybe like investor landscape when it comes to consumer, and do you see that consumer has maybe gone out of favor in some areas? Yeah, I think you nailed it on the head because I think going back five, eight years ago, and even over the past few years, there seemed to be anyway, a lot of kind of traditionally, you know, tech oriented investors who really did, you know, tech more than anything else, who started to invest in consumer. And I think in part because of competitiveness of tech deals, I think in part because wanting to diversify and finding opportunities. But I think the reality is that further elevated valuations across consumer. And I think the reality is it's just harder to get 10x, 50x, 100x, you know, you know, return like they might get in, you know, a couple of their portfolios across tech. And so I think over the next few years, I, you know, and particularly in the next year or two, I think we're going to see a decline in tech investors wanting to invest in consumer. If you look at some of the private equity reports out there, like Bain Capital, for example, their their annual report, consumer is actually one of the worst performing sectors across across private equity and almost 70% of GDP is spent on consumer consumption, right? So it's still, I mean, it's still a massive driver. And I think, I think for us, uh, you know, that's kind of where we have our operating experience. Like all of our partners have, you know, run businesses. Um, We understand consumer very, very well. We know all the inter, you know, a lot of the nuances around supply chain, around, you know, manufacturing and, and channel strategy and pricing strategy. There's just a lot of nuances as as there are in other sectors too. But I feel like, you know, it's, it's such a core competency for us that we feel like that's kind of where we have, you know, have the strength to be able to generate returns. I certainly agree with you. I, I also think too, when it comes to tech and software investors that, and I think sometimes the word D2C brand, it could be a little bit dangerous because I kind of feel like DDC brand sometimes entails that these businesses are fundamentally different to a retail business or a wholesale business. And maybe what gets really excited about you know software or tech investors is that you're using obviously technology, e-commerce to market and you know distribute your product. And so it it sounds like it's almost like a software product, but of course the product itself is not actually technical in a, in a lot of ways. When the vast majority of businesses actually on the product side, like it needs to work in retail in order for it to, you know, be a large company, right? So there's also been like that maybe like confusion about it as well, where B2C is a channel, but it's not actually like 
a fundamental business change to like a business. You know what I mean? Totally agree. Totally agree. And any business that is a D2C business, and there are examples of some that have stayed D2C, but, but at some point, there's the question of how do we get continued growth? And that can come from new products and it can come from new distribution and new channels. And a cost structure and an infrastructure required to go to retail is very different than an infrastructure required to do D2C, is very different from an infrastructure to have your own brick and mortar. And so I think that's spot on. I also think that, I guess, going back to investor landscape across consumer, to me, there's you know, I think there's a real value and focus and like entrepreneurs, one of the most common things we see is just chasing the shiny object and inability to really kind of focus on the core and build the core until you're really proven and ready to expand. And I think for us, that's, you know, that's something that we take to heart and how we're building our business that we want to, you know, focus. And, and I think, you know, consumer, I think, you know, investors who maybe have been investing from other areas into consumer, you know, hopefully, you know, that'll prove out well for all those entrepreneurs and investors. And at the same time, I think it may prove that, you know, focus is going to be really important, whether you're starting a business or whether you're investing. So with all this being said, and how when it comes to obviously return timeline for a, in a traditional venture capital fund, it's maybe quite different to you know Ridgeline because you have are able to have I presume more flexibility since you don't have outside investors. How do you think about returns? And also, I know that when you said you started you know eco products and we're, and we're part of that company, one of the big learnings was about let's not try to build this or let's build this and sell it to a strategic and that ended up you know not maybe being the right strategy at the time and you had to pivot your strategy. How has that influenced you as an investor when you're looking at deals? It's influenced us from the standpoint of, you know, when we go into an investment and whether we're buying a company in whole or we're investing in a growth equity round, as much as we can is focusing everyone on building the best business possible. And what are the decisions that need to be made right now to build the strongest, kind of most fundamentally sound business? And that over time will create the best options for whatever type of monetization method makes sense in the future for shareholders. And so we have six years under our belt as investors, and we are at a variety of stages of our with all of our companies. We invest, most of our businesses, we invested when they were 15 million or less in revenue. And we have companies now six years in who are, you know, several who are approaching 100 or over 100 and several that are smaller than that. And for us, if we were to put a timeline on those investments, I think there's the chance that we could be leaving value on the table. And, you know, I think a typical kind of you know, if we had a, a, a common fund structure, we could be asking ourselves the question, how do we monetize an investment in order to, you know, generate the track record to go raise another fund? And I think we would not be able to obtain the same type of returns over the long run if we were to do that and hold. So I think, you know, we'll have a couple of exits over the next, you know, two, three years, hopefully, if we're, if we're fortunate. But I think if you look at that, then will actually be operating within the same kind of timeline as as most investment firms. We just haven't, from the onset, put the confines of a you know ten year structure on us. So I would love to discuss as well how you evaluate founders and how you actually invest in businesses. So kind of what's your criteria all the way from maybe like top of funnel 
of how you think about as well sourcing opportunities and then all the way down to your actual due diligence process. Sure. Yeah. Well, sourcing for us has been entirely from so far with all of our investments has been through relationship-based channels. We haven't invested or bought a business that's been, you know, quote, a bank deal or auction deal at this point. It doesn't mean that we wouldn't in the future, but we just, we just haven't. We, you know, we, we really spend a lot of time getting to know the team and getting to know the founders and that being a driving part of our decision process. So when we think about our criteria, we have we call just kind of eight first line criteria that we go through. It stems from, is it a backable team in a group that we want to work with and believe in can help lead? And if there are gaps, do we help, do we believe that we can help fill those with our network? Second being, is it a, in a big market and could it be a big company? So, you know, will it, could it turn out to be, you know, really sizable business? Third being, is it a, do they have a sound channel strategy and is there a place on the shelf that actually exists? You know, there's a lot of, a lot of products out there that it's a great product, but the reality is retailers might not have a place for it on their shelf or they might not be willing to allocate enough uh, space for it. Fourth criteria being, you know, do we believe in the product and, and do, we, do we feel like it really meets a consumer need? And then does it have sufficient growth margins being the fifth criteria? The sixth being, is the company at profitability or have an attainable path to profitability? And that's something that's very important to us. And we continue to believe that over time, that's going to really prove out to be very important for strategic buyers. Seventh being, is it operationally sound, both from a supply chain and manufacturing perspective? And then eighth, are the valuation expectations in line with what we believe is fair? And we're not trying to get just the best deal out there. We want to win-win for, for all parties. So, so that's kind of the criteria that we go through, but, but underwriting all of it, more, most importantly, is just the team. What are some of the ways that you analyze teams? Because of course, I'd imagine, I mean, it's 2022. The market's actually probably a bit different than 2021 and maybe deals aren't moving as fast. But I'm going to assume that deals are still moving pretty fast. How then do you analyze uh, teams, build trust, build confidence that in these entrepreneurs where you feel comfortable making the investment? As much time as we can spend with them ahead of time. Sometimes we'll, you know, we may do things on a personal basis, try to try to spend time with them outside of just kind of normal business conversations. In some cases, we have had strategic planning sessions where we've kind of facilitated strategic planning sessions for the founder and the, and the team to really kind of get to know each other under that environment and understand how they think and operate. We check references reviewed and looked at kind of, um, you know, done uh, personality tests and, and assessments to understand kind of what drives individuals. So just looking at a lot of companies and a lot of founders, you can start to kind of pattern recognize what fits with you and, and what doesn't. And I think that that's a big part of it, but it all stems from just being able to spend a lot of time with them. How do you think, and we talked about distribution, marketing, you touched on those things. What about product? There's been a debate as well on the show and and also I, I post about it as well and it's gotten great comments both ways about in consumer, do you have to have a differentiated product to be a large company where it makes sense? I mean, you could build a very maybe successful business, but maybe not one that, you know, needs investor money. But can you build a large business where investor money makes sense, where you actually don't have I maybe um, IP or a sense of product differentiation or just how do you think about product differentiation in general? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's a great debate and I could probably argue it both ways to be honest with you. I think my, my more common thought is that I have is that product differentiation is ultimately really important. And I think the best product supported by the best team is 
going to be the winning business and the winning formula. So you can have a similar product and it all depends on the size of the market. I mean, there's some markets that are big enough where you can have multiple winners. And I think that's, you know, so, so it really kind of depends on category and sector. But at the end of the day, if you have a product that's easily replicated and, and low defensibility, then I think, number one, not only is it going to be harder to attract investors, number two, you're going to have to, you know, the strategy, the winning strategy is probably going to be run faster than everyone else. And that's fine for a little bit. Um, that also means that you might not be as efficient with your money, that other people could, you know, could replicate it or, you know, what's what's on trend today might be off trend tomorrow. So at the end of the day, I think defensibility is, is to me, is the more, you know, more important attribute. So, and I guess that, that can go kind of two ways. One, defensibility in the product itself or defensibility in the brand itself. So that makes sense. What are you finding when you're meeting with entrepreneurs besides raising money? What are you finding that entrepreneurs need or struggle with maybe the most when you meet with them? And maybe what, how you also think about how that plays to your strengths in terms of um, value that you could provide? I think probably the, the, more, the most common or a couple of the most common ones are, it's just the broad question of, you know, how do I grow? How do I get the business from you know, here to there. And a lot of that stems from distribution strategy and channel strategy and not having the capital to invest internally in the right team and or, you know, not know how, how to, you know, find and spot the right talent and, you know, and maybe not, not knowing how to kind of coach that talent too. I think another one being pricing strategy, being a really important one that each channel having a, you know, a different approach in that regard and how do you kind of balance that over time. And then in general being, you know, how do you just scale operations of the business and, you know, knowing when to add, add certain people and knowing when, you know, you need to think more about different supply chain and redundancy. So I think it's a broad spectrum. When does it make sense in your mind, if you also have any examples as well, that'd be great, but when to diversify channels, your sales channels, maybe that's going from e-commerce to going to actually building out your wholesale retail business or or maybe that's already in a series of stores and it's it's going and diversifying and getting into another series of stores how do you think about channel diversification well we like to see some diversification from the start i mean i know you know as a startup you can't do it all obviously but when you get to you know the size of call it 5 million 10 million 15 million Ideally, you will have tested enough channels to know what works and what doesn't. You'll have a little bit of a base in several different channels. And I think what can be hard is that companies that maybe historically have been, you know, retail oriented products that don't haven't yet invested in D2C. And, you know, believe it or not, there's still a lot out there that are kind of in that boat. You know, it can be hard to prove the unit economics going into D2C if you don't have a high enough AOV and depending on what CAC is. And so it can be a pretty big lift to try to build that business. And just the inverse, like we talked about, if you're focused only on D2C to go into a retail channel and, you know, have a different sales team and, you know, build competency around how do you manage brokers, I think that can be equally as big of a lift. So for us, for us, it's, you know, and I think for, you know, just building a business in general, I think diversification is really important to understand, you know, at an early age to understand what's going to hit. And then you, you kind of put fuel to the, on the fire and the channels that are really, really making, you know, working the best. 
That's really helpful. Within the broader health and wellness, what are some particular categories that you're really excited about? And maybe some also categories that, and they could be also attractive to other investors. And maybe if there's any categories we might have like a contrarian take or one that it may not seem that exciting on the surface, but you think there actually is a lot of potential for innovation. I'll say one because we're invested in two different apparel companies and a lot of investors shy away from apparel. And I'll say the reason why we have invested in apparel, I mean, for one, we felt like the teams were very exceptional in those businesses. Number two, we felt like the markets were enormous and specific areas that the brands Cotopaxi and Oros Apparel being the two companies, what they were going after in the target consumers, there was just plenty of room for disruption. Cotopaxi being more style oriented and, and a little bit more fashion oriented with some technical you know, packs and gear. And Oros is a very technical type driven fabric. And I know you had Michael Marksberry on the show. So you understand both of the businesses. And, and I think for us, you know, it's certainly apparel can be more capital intensive. At the same time, if you build a really good product, there's opportunity to really target your core consumer. And there are good margins in apparel. And I think once you get to scale, it can be a very solid business. It's just, you know, how long will it take to get to scale? So I think that's one where we've gone a, a direction that, you know, maybe a lot of investors have kind of shied away from. I think manufacturing as well, like on the food side and even other types of manufacturing, like we're investors in the pros closet, which is the largest um, seller of pre-owned bikes in the world, soon to be the largest seller of all bikes um, you know, in the world. And they effectively kind of remanufacture bikes. They take used bikes, bring them into their you know, 130,000 square foot facility. And on the other side, it looks like a brand new bike and it's really incredible. And, you know, and in the food world, we're invested in and own a couple of food businesses that self-manufacture. And I think there was a, a movement by a lot of investors over the past several years to move away from manufacturing heavy businesses, you know, asset light businesses to ones that co-pack. And we actually like manufacturing oriented businesses because you can control more of your supply chain. You can control your product quality. You can control a lot more factors, you know, that help you scale and, and grow your business. And there's something from an investor standpoint that owning assets actually, you know, just it's just more comforting and secure to a certain extent than just simply a brand. What were some of your learnings during COVID? I was totally wrong from the standpoint that when COVID hit, I thought the markets were going to you know, be hammered for a long time. I thought it was going to consumer sentiment would be really challenged for a long time. And boy, was I wrong on that one. So take this for, for what it's worth. But I think some of the lessons being that you do need to you know, be prepared to move quickly. I think our companies did react very, very quickly, put plans in place to figure out how to how to move, you know, how to work remotely, how to, you know, modify their supply chains. So from that standpoint, I think our, you know, companies did really well. And, and that was a lesson in that regard. I think from an investor standpoint, I think just having patience being very important. We were within two weeks away from closing on a deal when kind of mid-March when COVID kind of really hit hard. And we talked with the seller about negotiating a 90-day extension and you know why it made sense for not just us, but also them to kind of see how this played out. And it worked out really well and we ended up moving forward with the investment. And so I think just patience being really important in times of uncertainty in a real big time of uncertainty right now. Some people say that you know the markets have 
gone down as low as they have. You know, I think there could be another floor that, that we could see, you know, for a while longer. And so I think just patience is so important and, and the valuation that you buy a company or invest in in a company at the end of the day drives a, a lot of returns, in my opinion. It's, you know, I have a hard time, you know, agreeing with the philosophy that the valuation doesn't matter. I mean, it does matter because, <laughs> Because if you, you know, invest too high, especially in the consumer space, you know, you have too high of a hurdle in your next round if you don't show the growth on that business. And, and then it just makes the returns that much more difficult to get. No, exactly. Because also, you know, exits in consumer, they're just typically not as big as, you know, software and tech and, you know, even getting like a billion dollar outcome. It's extremely rare, if not impossible. It's still amazing how many entrepreneurs we see who who will look for a four or five times or even 10 times, you know, revenue multiple because they point to PE, you know, ratio of public company or they point to a, you know, a strategic acquisition that was done at some crazy multiple. And the reality is when you're raising a minority kind of growth equity round or even when you're selling a business and it's a small sub $20 million business, if you expect the valuation that kind of outlier valuation, then you're setting yourself up for a very challenging future because the valuation that that investor comes in at, every investor is going to want at least 3x their money. So you can do the math of what does the valuation have to be to 3x the money and what does your revenue have to be on a normal, you know, kind of adjusted basis, you know, multiple. And can you get to that level the next time you need capital? And it's oftentimes it's nearly impossible for founders to pencil out. But at the same time, there's so much capital out there still investing in it that, you know, these valuations are still happening. And I think over the next kind of year or two, it's going to, you know, flush out a little bit. What's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? My favorite book of all time is a book called Endurance about Ernest Shackleton's voyage across Antarctica. And to me, this was so pivotal, I think, personally and even professionally, but it just showed the value in having a good team, showed the value of having a good leader. It's also this just incredibly, um, just all-consuming read that you just want to turn every page until it's done. And when you think they've hit the hardest point of their journey, another even more difficult obstacle comes. It's unreal. So highly recommend that one. From a professional standpoint, Blue Ocean Strategy was one of my favorites many years ago. And at Eco Products, I bought that for our uh, management team to read. And I think it really, at least for me, it helps shape how I thought about really zigging when others are zagging and trying to be innovative and different. And you don't have to follow a, you know, a certain template or cookie cutter formula to build a business. Awesome. Awesome. We've had quite a few folks recommend endurance. I still need to read it because everyone has that same reaction when they describe endurance. So I definitely need to put that on my reading list. My final question to you is what's the best piece of advice that you've received or something that you kind of say yourself in your head over and over again? I think one, you know, maybe that that I'll just uh, state here because there's probably entrepreneurs listening and having started businesses myself. And and that was after uh, one of the companies I started did not succeed. A mentor of mine told me, Luke, you are not your business. Your identity is not your business. And, you know, after you go through the process of starting a company and if it isn't as successful as you want or if it doesn't succeed, 
You feel like your whole identity is tied up in that. And if it fails, you feel like a failure. It's so easy to feel that way. And being able to separate yourself from your business and your identity from your business, to me, is one of the most important ways to bounce back because you can, you know, you can remake yourself and remake your career and reshape it so easily. And so just separating your identity from your business is, is one of the underlying things that I remember most from what a mentor of mine said. I really do love that piece of advice because especially in the early innings, when you're working what it seems like, you know, all day and all night building your business and your business is your life, it's really important to make sure you don't tie that up with your identity, especially if things don't go kind of according to plan, since, you know, very small percentage of entrepreneurs, their businesses actually become businesses, right? And so don't also kill yourself and kind of tying your identity to your business. Totally agree. Luke, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate it. And there you have it. It was amazing chatting with Luke. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.